Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals. CBC run a wide range of courses covering a variety of topics and genres. If you're interested in bringing your true stories to the page, why not join their six-week online writing a memoir course with exclusive teaching videos, resources and writing tasks from best-selling author Kathy Rensenbrink. By the end of the course, you'll have written at least the first 3,000 words of your memoir and developed a plan for the rest of the book. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert non-fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of writing a memoir or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the journalist and author Toby Harnden. We spoke to Toby about getting into journalism after leaving the military, about writing about the IRA and the war in Afghanistan, and about his latest book, First Casualty. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Toby, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's excellent to have you on the show. We wanted to start by asking about First Casualty and particularly this book, which is about the beginning of the 9-11 wars, but is published 20 years after after the time it was set. Why why now? And what was it like looking journalistically and as a historian at these episodes after that amount of time had passed? What were you able to do maybe with this book that with your some of your other reporting on these conflicts you were not able to do? Yeah, well, why now? I mean, it's something I was in Washington, DC on 9-11. Um, I was sort of in downtown DC walking into the Telegraph Bureau. And so, you know, 9-11 was a very big sort of moment in my life as it was for many, many um, other people. And so, although it is 20 years ago, that is a sort of a remarkable fact for me. And it's something that I've, the subject in a way I've followed ever since then. I mean, I was um, obviously very wrapped up in the aftermath of 9-11. I went up to the flight 93 crash site, I think a day or two after 9-11. Um, I vividly remember hearing about Mike Spann being killed, Mike Spann's funeral and Shannon Spann speaking there. And it was, I think it was a couple of years later, I was in Iraq, strangely enough. And somebody said to me, have you ever seen the footage of that CIA officer sort of running for his life in the fort? And I hadn't seen it. And um, so I, I looked at it and I was just sort of captivated by this image of this guy who was David Tyson you know, running with a pistol in one hand and an AK-47 in another um, just after Mike Spann had been killed. And I, I just remember thinking like, wow, what was going through his head? He's just seen his comrade killed. Um, he's killed lots of people himself. Um, he doesn't know whether he's going to live for another five minutes or, you know, for another 20 years. Um, just incredible to, to, to see that. So I was fascinated by him and... Um, I I tracked him down um, 
eventually in 2013. Um, and <laughs> the way it is in sort of DC area, you know, he was living in Vienna, Virginia, like a few miles away from me. And we met in a Panera bread and um, he was friendly, uh, but couldn't say very much because he was still in the CIA. Um, but I kept in contact with him and he, and he when he retired, he, he contacted me actually after I'd got the book deal, just after miraculously, and said, you know, I'm ready to talk. And so I've always, you know, I've been conscious that these people were in the CIA and um, most of them had long careers after the events of, of 9-11 and it's very hard to talk to them. They're, they're not allowed to talk to journalists and you can, you know, you can try and sort of work the angles a little bit, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. And so my sort of pitch to them was, you know, this is history now. It's 20 years it's the start of history. Um, and it just so happened that um, all but one of the six members of Team Alpha had re had retired. Um, there were obviously very few, if any, sort of, you know, operational security or personal security issues surrounding talking great detail about detail about the events there. So it just it just sort of felt like the right time. And had you been collecting bits of research and information over the years, or did you have that? initial interview in 2013 and then start really putting the book together? Well, I mean, I ever since about probably 2004, I'd been really interested in in Kalajangi and what happened in northern Afghanistan in 2001. Um, 2013 was just really a was just a meeting and a chat. And I, I definitely, as soon as it finished, wrote down everything I could I could remember, but it wasn't really an interview. Um, I did. Um, in about 2014, I had the initial idea of, of doing the book and started to do a small number of interviews. And for various reasons, it got sort of shelved. Um, but principally, it was just um, a process of like full immersion for about 17 months where I did nothing else. And I just saw as many people as I could. Um, and I just sort of amassed it and, and 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 put it all together. So it wasn't, although the sort of germination was a long period, it wasn't. Um, it's, it's not really the way I work, actually. I mean, um, total immersion is 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 much more what I tend to do. Um, so yeah, it wasn't a case of me painstakingly putting it all together over a decade. I wish I could work like that in some ways. Do you want to explain, Toby, just for any listeners who aren't familiar, who Mike Spann was and and what Kuala Jangi was and, and what happened there in 2001? Sure. So Mike Spann was a former Marine Corps officer, uh, 32 years old, um, who was a CIA paramilitary, who joined the CIA in middle of 1999, was married to a CIA officer, Shannon Spann. And he was uh, one of the eight members of Team Alpha. So Team Alpha was uh, at, at its core paramilitary officers. Um, four of them were paramilitary officers, two were case officers, one was a medic, one was a Green Beret. And they were sort of hastily assembled immediately after 9-11 as one of the CIA teams to, to um, go into Northern Afghanistan to link up with Abdul Rashid Dostum, the ethnic Uzbek warlord. And so um, Team Alpha arrived uh, in the Darisu Valley, October the 17th, 2001. And they um, connected with Dostum and uh, then some Green Berets came in who sort of became famous as the Horse Soldiers, ODA 595 and some others. Uh, 
They captured um, Masri Sharif from the Taliban on November the 9th, November the 10th, 2001, which was the first sort of domino to fall from the Taliban regime then. And um, November the 25th, 2001, it looked like it was sort of over in Masri Sharif and the big fight was in Kunduz over to the east. And um, most of the American forces, most of Dostum's forces were in Kunduz or just, or just outside. Um, but a number of prisoners, about 400, uh, surrendered in very sort of murky circumstances outside Masri Sharif, uh, which is sort of like 100 miles west of Kunduz. Um, after an even murkier deal between Mullah Fazl, who was a Taliban, the Taliban uh, deputy defense minister then, who's got the same job now, um, in sort of terms of surrender. Uh, basically, the surrender was fake. The prisons weren't searched properly as per sort of Afghan custom. And uh, they were sort of hastily put into the basement of a building in Kalajangi, building called the Pink House. Um, and John Walker Lynn, the American, so-called American Taliban, was, was one of them. The next morning, November the 25th, Mike Spann and David Tyson, alone as Americans, although there were a number of um, dozens of Northern Alliance guards and, uh, and interrogators, they went into the fort um, and the prisoners were brought, brought out in sort of ones and twos and, and questioned. It was just kind of like a very rough sort of filter um, sift of the prisoners. Um, around about 11 a.m., uh, there was gunfire from inside the pink house where the prisoners were being brought out. Uh, grenades um, went off um, and Mike Spann was overwhelmed uh, by prisoners. He shot, he used his AKMS rifle to kill some. He killed some with his um, Glock, Glock pistol, um, but was basically killed probably within a minute or two. Um, and David Tyson, uh, who was some distance away, about 40 yards or so away, ran towards where Mike was, um, killed the Al-Qaeda guys who were on top of Mike. And they were Al-Qaeda because they were foreign fighters. They weren't they weren't Afghans, there were no Afghans in this 400, mostly Arabs, but they were from all over the world. Um, and actually two Americans, John Walker Lins and uh, a, a sort of Saudi or a Saudi sort of family guy who'd been born in, in the US. Um, and so David Tyson was then faced with this situation of sort of kill or be killed. Um, and he had to kill his way out of the southern compound of the fort to sort of relative safety. And there was then a sort of six day battle involving the SBS, Green Berets, um, US Air Power, um, and then the 10th Mountain Division, the first conventional troops in the Afghan war. So, I mean, I was attracted to it partly because of the drama of um, <clears throat> a CIA officer being killed and another one having to kill so many Al-Qaeda, but also because it brought together all these different elements, including uh, the British SBS, who sort of just sort of happened to be there and, and helped save the day. And you spent six weeks in Afghanistan reporting for First Casualty. How were those six weeks sort of divided up in terms of your daily sort of routine? Um, and also, how was it funded? Was it part of the advance that you were able to go on this reporting trip or was it sort of self-funded? Um, I used the advance. So, you know, that was sort of tricky because before I'd been researching, um, I mean, first book bandit country i was the northern ireland correspondent for the telegraph so it was just sort of day trips because south armagh was so close um and then 
with Dead Men Risen, I was a staff um, reporter for the Telegraph. So I was able to sort of um, have Telegraph insurance and do some reporting that the, the paper paid for. And obviously I was on salary. So it, it was it was more difficult this time. Um, I mean, the trip was classic Afghanistan and I'd sort of forgotten because it was a few years since I'd been there properly. Um, so I planned for two to three weeks, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, it was, it was six weeks. And, and so there was a, the usual sort of a lot of waiting, listening in Kabul, a lot of waiting around because I was trying to, my main sort of interview target was, was Dostum. And he's very elusive. Sometimes he's in Turkey, sometimes he's in Uzbekistan, sometimes he might be in exile for a couple of years. Occasionally he'll go to Kabul. But I really wanted to see him in um, in Shebagan, which was in his, you know, domain. Um, and uh, so I, I can't remember how long it, it was, probably about um, two weeks or more in Kabul. And I, you know, I was able to interview Abdullah Abdullah, um, some of the uh, two of the Hazara warlords, Karim Khalili and Mohammed Moakek, so people who were big players at the time. So it was it was useful time, but it was also you know the hotel bill was sort of ticking up and uh, it was getting frustrating. But um, then um, I you know and I was very much in the hands of Dostum and Dostum's people, you know, as to when he would be available and 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 the logistics. Um, but then eventually I. I uh, they said, "Yeah, he's he's um, he's going to be in Shebagan, uh, which was great, and you can go and see him." So I got a flight to Masri Sharif, and then I was I was staying there in a sort of guest house, like Dostum had these guest houses in different cities around Afghanistan, and so I was waiting for uh, a week, maybe ten days, to get to to get to Shebagan because. Um, the Taliban controlled the road. So even it, even though it would have been a drive of about an hour, it was just unsafe. And I was also very anxious to get to Kalajangi uh, because obviously that's, you know, the sort of key location for the book. And it was very important for me to be able to sort of walk the ground. And again, typical Afghan, there was sort of, you know, all these reasons why I couldn't go to Kalajangi, you know, and it's always a Pashtun general. It's not convenient today. Somebody's sick. And so I was starting to get worried that I actually wasn't going to be able to, to get there. Um, anyway, eventually I got um, a flight to um, Shebagan. I interviewed Dostum and all Dostum's people that I could find there, which was which was fantastic. You know, I rode his horses. I, you know, did did the whole thing. Then I couldn't get out because I had to get a helicopter. And so it was Groundhog Day for about for about another ten days, where I was sitting there. You know, eating all this food and you know putting on a few pounds and go occasionally going to the helipad with my bags to be you know told oh sorry you know the helicopter's moving uh, battle casualties around you know there's a corpse on the and I mean I don't mind and they'd be like no 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 you know it needs to go back to his the dead soldier's village and so on so there was this anyway eventually I got out um, and then um, I went back to Kabul. Um, and had a, a couple of days sort of um, decompressing. And then the final thing was because I'd, I, I had, um, I'd forgotten, but I had a, my visa expired after a month. And so when I got to the airport, I'd been through all the COVID tests and all that kind of stuff. And, and then 
when I got to um, uh, the the check the immigration checkpoint, uh, the guy was like, you know, you have to go to the you have to go to your embassy and uh, or the minister of, ministry of foreign affairs and and get your you know get an extension to your visa. And um, so I just went through the thing of, you know, luckily I had a few hundred dollar bills. And so I sort of, you know, I paid the bribe and, uh, and I got out. But uh, and I was I was pretty pleased to go at that point. Could we roll back now to the start of your career as a journalist? So is it right that you, you left the Navy in 1994 and, and it began at that point? And what was it like making that shift? And what was that your, your sort of late 20s or, or early 30s? And had you always had ambitions to write? So I was so when I left the Navy in, in 94, I was 28. There was a sort of overlap. Um, so so I'd already I'd always my father was in the Navy. Uh, there was a sort of tradition of being in the military going back generations. And so I'd always um, wanted to do that, I, um, you know, for I guess, you know, in hindsight, not always the best reasons, pleasing your father, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd studied history at Oxford. Um, I'd always liked writing. And I, although I had brief periods of sort of great enthusiasm in the Navy and, you know, I, I think I always at the back of my mind thought that I was, I, I was going to leave. And so it was probably around 91. So three years before I actually left, I started doing journalism. I wrote an article for the Scotsman about a thing I'd done with the Navy in Edinburgh. Um, I uh, managed to persuade them to let me do theatre reviews uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe. So I did that for three consecutive summers, which was great fun. And it gave me that sort of buzz of, you know, you write something and then it's in print the next day. And because it was the Edinburgh Fringe, if you said something nice, sometimes it would be sort of blown up and it would be on a poster. You know, so it really gave me that sort of um, bug. I also did um, obituaries. Um, there was a an admiral who's uh, lost a lot of money um, with Lloyd's who killed himself. And uh, the office where I was working for in the Ministry of Defence at the time, they were asked to do an obituary by, uh, by the independent. So I sort of latched onto this and thought, you know, this would be good to do. And I realised that obituaries in the independent were bylined. And... I'd written it and I remember having a conversation with the obits editor um, because the sort of plan in the office, because of the way the military works, was that the admiral's name would byline would be on the obituary. And I sort of said, you know, pseudo innocently, well, you know, how does it work? I mean, you know, basically I wrote it and is, is it usually the person who writes it who's, whose name will be on the piece? And of course, the obits editor said, oh, yes, yes, of course. And so I had to go into the admiral and say, I'm terribly sorry, sir, but, you know, they really insist that my name is on this. <laughs> so that was my sort of first national newspaper uh, byline. And then I did a bunch of um, Navy obituaries, which was fun. And, and actually for years afterwards, an admiral would fall off his perch and, and I'd have an obit with a byline published in, in the Independent. Um, and then I, through all this, um, I remember me, I bumped into a guy called Gordon Drucker, who was a, the night news editor at the Daily Express. And he was also a, a Royal Air Force reservist. And I met him at some dinner at Greenwich. And I said, sort of, how do you, how do you get into journalism? And he sort of said, well, you know, s services, um, 
you know, your background, you, you know, you want to avoid going to regional papers if you can because of your age and stuff. Um, he said, the best way, the best way to break into journalism with no experience is a diary. And given the military background and Max Hastings is the editor of the Telegraph, why don't you go for the Telegraph? So I wrote a letter <laughs> to uh, Quentin Letts, who is the Peterborough editor. And I remember getting a sort of a type letter back saying, you know, dear Lieutenant Harden, thank you for your, you know, your letter. You know, if you contact my secretary, we can discuss a time when you might be able to come in. And I remember that moment, which was a year before I'd left the Navy, um, thinking, that's it, I'm in. I've got my foot in the door. That's it, done. Uh, and and in a way, that I just never took my foot out of the door, but I would work um, on weekend. I got, I got sort of exiled to Plymouth by the Navy once I put my letter of resignation in. I had to serve out like a, a, a year's notice. Um, but I would drive up from Plymouth to London to work for no money. Um, I'd work for contributions. So if I got something, if I got a story in, I'd get paid. So it's a big incentive to get to get stories. Um, no bylines, but you know, a lot of experience, a lot of experience. And then actually a month, I for a month I spent August 94, I left the Navy in October. Um, I had a trial in the newsroom for a month. And I discussed with my boss at the Navy. Um, who was a nice guy who was retired, you know, he was retiring and going to become a maths teacher. And he was, you know, very sort of friendly. It was a real backwater. I was on a, I was attached to a submarine, a nuclear submarine in refit in Plymouth Dockyard. And he said, yeah, you shouldn't have a, you probably shouldn't have any bylines. And so I thought, okay. And, uh, but then when I got there, I thought, ah, oh, screw it. I'm going to, you know, I need some bylines. And so I had bylines for an entire month while I was still on news stories while I was still, um, while I was still in the Navy. So, um, you know, it felt like by the time I'd actually left the Navy, I was, you know, I was very much sort of on track for, for getting in to the Telegraph. You said in other interviews that insecurity and even a degree of paranoia are part of the necessary skill set for journalists. What did you mean by that? So, um, I don't know where I said that, but I do remember Colin Randall, who was a very senior and great reporter at the Telegraph, um saying to me he was one of the london-based reporters when i was so i was a northern ireland correspondent but i was very junior and and new to get that job and i was very protective of the of the turf and i didn't like it when you know big bombs would go off and big reporters from london would get sent sent in to quotes help and um and so you know, and Colin had was interested in Northern Ireland and had long experience of, of going there and 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 would also do interviews in England with various people. And I would feel, I don't know, competitive. Um, and I didn't, you know, want, you know, I, I felt that I I owned the subject. And I remember Colin saying to me when I was I, I, I you know, I was trying to sort of fend him off on something, saying, you know. Sometimes, you know, Toby, you display an unfortunate combination of arrogance and paranoia. <laughs> and, um, and I remember thinking like, shit, you know, that's, that's probably right. But I now think that in a way, that's sort of, you know, in a way you need to be a bit like that because if you don't have the paranoia, you always just think you're great and, you know, you, you don't try, you know, you don't sort of try. You don't have this feeling of like, 
actually I'm a maybe I'm not really good at this I'm a bit of a fraud and I'm just going to get sort of found out but you also have to have a little bit of an arrogance because you have to sort of go into unfamiliar situations talk to people you know who've got a long list of achievements and are, are very clever and know a lot more about the subject you're talking about than you do and so I I do feel that those two sort of character traits a part of me and and maybe are part of a lot of journalists. Could you tell us about what the experience of working in Northern Ireland was like and how you ended up getting the job and then particularly some of these these challenging situations you had like when you were ordered to hand over recordings and notes of interviews and some of these court proceedings and, and stuff like that and, and also bandit country as well. How did these parts of the your career come about? So Northern Ireland was fantastic. It was, you know, it was the sort of job that made me it, in some ways it's the you know the best job i ever had because it felt like a foreign posting in some ways it was treated like a foreign posting but obviously it was part of the uk and remains so um and it's it's very small so you can go to everything and when i got there i decided i'm just going to go to i'm just going to go to everything you know if there's a bomb somewhere if a soldier gets shot i'm just going to go and but there was a lot of laziness amongst other journalists there and, and where people were just listening to Radio Ulster. And it's, oh, it's just a bomb, you know, I'm, I'll just, you know, I'll just take it from Radio Ulster. And um, in a way it was almost sort of naivety that it didn't even occur to me sort of not to go to things. Um, and obviously as you, as you get later on in your career, you sort of realize how you can cut corners and how many people do. And, you know, obviously occasionally you do occasionally you sort of think, well, is it worth a four hour drive for what is probably going to be a paragraph? Um, but at the time, I think it served me really well because every single story, I would learn something or meet somebody or, you know, make a contact that would then serve me well uh, later on. Um, and so getting the job, I don't think I would ever have got that job if um, the first IRA ceasefire hadn't have ended. So the, the ceasefire ended um, in February 1996. And I vividly remember it because I was in Canary Wharf when this huge freaking bomb went off and shook, you know, sh shook the building, took the elevators out, and, you know, I sort of ran down 14 floors or whatever it was and headed over there. Um, I'd already been appointed the Northern Ireland correspondent in March. So, you know, so a month later, I was waiting to go. And, and during that evening, as I was reporting on it and walking around with sort of the glass crunching underneath my feet, I remember thinking like, damn, are they going to, are they going to pull this job? Are they going to send somebody more experience? Because it's suddenly become a massive story. Um, and I was conscious at the time that I was, if a big story happened, I was the last person in the newsroom to get called on to go out, you know, because, you know, I was just this weird guy that had just left the Navy. I hadn't been on a regional paper um, and it didn't have shorthand. And so um, that's one of the reasons why I'd gone for the Northern Ireland job. I'd done holiday cover um, a couple of months earlier for Richard Savile. And I remember actually at Aldergrove Airport, I remember walking into the airport and I, there was this weird, there's this funny carpet with lots of maps of Ulster on it and everything. And I remember thinking, huh, maybe one of the reasons um, I'm being sent here is because 
uh, they think I might be the correspondent here. And I remember thinking, that's a, that would be pretty cool. Um, and so I then got approached by the Evening Standard where Max Hastings had moved to, to be their defence correspondent. And I sort of used that as leverage to get the Northern Ireland job. And if, in fact, I said, I'd like to go to the Middle East, which was kind of a preposterous idea, <laughs> um, or Northern Ireland. They were like, okay, well, maybe Northern Ireland. So they appointed me to that job. They didn't change their minds, but I think they must have thought about it. Um, but anyway, I got there in March 96. And then all this, um, this sort of handicap of not being experienced and not being a hard news person and everything, that went out of the window almost, almost immediately because I was there. And so I was the only person who could do it. And I did it. And so it just, it just got sort of forgotten. So um, it was, it was, uh, it was a fantastic job. And again, you know, talked earlier about that sort of immersive experience, you know, I was single, I just, you know, spent all my time there. I even my accent towards the end got a bit sort of had some Northern Irish intonation. Um, and uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, it's the, the stuff about the notes um, and the recordings. I mean, you know, uh, I think one of the sort of characteristics of my sort of journalism career has been sort of pushing the envelope um, for, for good and for ill. Um, and so if I can just go that little bit further and, and sort of name names or create trouble or um, do something that a lot of other journalists uh, might not do because it could cause problems. I've tended to have that sort of contrarian sort of thing. Well, I'm just, I'm just going to do it. And so, um, you know, I interviewed uh, a couple of soldiers who were present on Bloody Sunday, one of whom had um, fired shots. And uh, I knew it was going to be controversial because they had been, they had been told at that point that they couldn't give testimony uh, anonymously. And they were sort of saying, well, we're not going to tell the truth. We're not going to tell the full story. Um, unless we get anonymity and they were and they gave me sort of some of what they said was the full story so it was quite the way it was presented by the telegraph was quite provocative because it was like well you know here are these people who were here are these paratroopers who were present on bloody sunday who who aren't gonna who were gonna refuse to tell the truth um and so i ended up being the first witness called by the savile tribunal by that point i'd already left northern Ireland. i was in i was in washington um, but yeah, I mean, it went on for, it went on for several years where, um, you know, lots of just discussions with lawyers, um, you know, I was, I was, uh, held in contempt or they, there was an application by the Savile Tribunal for, for me to be held in, in contempt. I destroyed before the Bina subpoena, I'd, um, destroyed, uh, the recordings, um, because, I was very aware of the Sarah Tisdall case where the Guardian had had to hand over the documents and the documents identified her as the source. So I was really determined that wasn't going to happen. But again, it was it was slightly provocative to say, well, I knew that I was going to be asked for these tapes, so I destroyed them. And in fact, I was told subsequently that the law or the, there, was, there was a change that if you do that now, um, you can be, you know, you can be held in contempt for doing something in an, 
in anticipation of a subpoena. But anyway, it was sort of okay. But it got, you know, it got, it was, um, you know, it was pretty um, difficult and stressful. And to go into uh, the Guild Hall, I think it was in Derry, to be the first witness before the Savile Tribunal, it was a very sort of hostile uh, atmosphere. Um, was was pretty difficult, but in the end, uh, the uh, I, I mean, I always knew this was the case that they could find they were able to find out who these paratroopers were independently, um, and so the contempt uh, proceedings were dropped. In your work um, in Northern Ireland and in general, how do you develop those relationships with sources? How do you get people to open up, especially in sort of febrile um, territories? Um, I think what I've always done is um, I've tried to uh, get to know people in as an inf- informal way as possible. And it's, in fact, it's one of the reasons why I love sort of book writing compared to the sort of daily journalism where you sort of have to, you know, stick, you know, take recorders in people's faces and, and, and kind of get quotes on, on deadline. So in Northern Ireland, you know, it was just through sort of socializing, sort of dating, um, going to pubs, you know, going to uh, events. And I would just sort of make friends. I mean, Northern Ireland, a little bit in some ways like Washington, um, everybody is something, you know, everybody's either, you know, everybody's connected through family or work or to, to some aspect of the story. So I just sort of lived the story. There was no difference really, uh, or very little difference um, between, you know, sort of personal life and work. It was all part of the, the same thing. And I think as I've gone on, I've learned that, uh, you know, the more you can, build a relationship with people that involves knowing about their kids, knowing about the sports teams they support and just sort of hanging out with them and listening to what they want to talk about. The more you can do that as opposed to the, you know, Hey, so-and-so I know we haven't spoken to for spoken to each other for, for two months, but I need something now. Can you give it to me? You know, um, that, that, you know, that's that's not a way to get sort of people to to open up and so i mean interviews i mean now if i do an interview so say an interview for first casualty interviews would often be like five hours long where i just sort of go to their house you know have something to eat you know go on on huge tangents about you know they might discuss you know their late wife or something and rather than i mean i've been involved in in interviews with other journalists where I can't believe how crass they've been about sort of cutting people off about, you know, as soon as it's not relevant to what the journalist is interested in, they just sort of cut them off and say, oh, yeah, yeah. And anyway, tell me about this. And so I never do that. And so interviews can become very sort of rambling golf on huge tangents. And, and I don't mind if there's not a time crunch, there's not a deadline for that day. I don't mind. And it, it you know, just builds people's confidence and also, surprising things come out you never know the tangent the sort of rambling path that may seem off the subject can actually end up somewhere very interesting hello it's artemis the producer of always take notes i hope you're enjoying simon and rachel's conversation with the journalist and author toby hondon 
It's time for the next instalment of our new segment. As you may be aware, in this segment, we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. They answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what's the most important trait someone in your profession can have? Their answers weren't included in the main interviews that Simon and Rachel did with them. So hopefully they give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the fascinating guests we've had on. So without further ado, here's the chair of Virago Press, Lenny Goodings, on a time in her career she failed. Publishing is very much about taking responsibility and understanding your power. And also I think, you know, it's a particular thing for a woman to accept power and to understand that power is is okay and it's not um, to be shamed of. But I would say in publishing, you have to take responsibility to make a profit. That is your job as a publisher. It doesn't mean you do it at, at expense of absolutely everything, of course, and especially when you're Virago, you have, you know, you have a, a moral and a, a political purpose to your publishing company. But nevertheless, your responsibility is to take your authors seriously, to take your um, your staff seriously and to survive. And there was a time when we, uh, for a combination of reasons, we slightly overstretched ourselves. The market changed, um, feminism changed, all sorts of things. Um, we had to make some people redundant and I would definitely call that a failure of mine and the rest of the people at, at Virago at that time for not, not managing. We did then pick ourselves up and we have survived and we are here nearly 50 years later. So that is a failure that we have learned from. That is for sure. That was Lenny Goodings. And if you found what Lenny had to say interesting, you can listen back to our full interview with her via our website. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Toby Hondon. Can you tell us about Bandit Country, about how it came about, what the process of uh, reporting was like, and then some of the challenges that you experienced both as you were working on it and, and after it came out. And to explain, this was Toby's first book published in 1999. Yeah. So um, I remember, you know, in 1977, I was 11 years old, and I remember Robert Nyrak being abducted, who's um, a Grenadier Guards officer who was sort of working sort of undercover, who's sort of intelligence liaison officer, um, he was kidnapped in South Armagh, murdered, like bits of his teeth were found and blood, but his body has still never been found. So I remember being fascinated by him, a real sort of kind of boy's own hero. He was awarded the George Cross. Um, and so I was conscious of sort of South Armagh, of this sort of, this, you know, this rural area where the police and army couldn't go and everybody f flew around in helicopters um, and it's and for me, it seemed like the place where the war was still going on, because in 96, we were between ceasefires, but there was kind of this phony sense that Belfast and Derry IRA had been heavily compromised and there was a political process going on. So the, so the violence was um, very kind of calibrated and sort of minimal. But in South Armagh, there was a sniper team. So there's an IRA sniper team that was killing soldiers, sometimes from very long distance and so I was like wow there's a sniper team the sniper at work signs um and then I became conscious that um somebody told me that 
you know, you realize that all the bombs in England come from South Armagh. And I was like, no. Um, but basically the England department of the IRA was being run from South Armagh because it was kind of safe uh, territory, including the Canary Wharf bomb or the South Key bomb, it's also called, um, that I had sort of witnessed. Um, and also Slab Murphy was uh, reputedly the IRA chief of staff and he was this pig farmer, fuel smuggler living on the border on this farm that actually literally was on both sides of the border. And um, so I just, um, when the, they were actually making arrests for the Canary Wharf bomb and I, I was sort of driving across the border and I saw the sign Fork Hill and I knew that that was where um, the arrest operation was taking place. So I just drove off there and I saw sort of British soldiers in undergrowth and, you know, these, these sort of beautiful country lanes. I thought like, wow, this is like, you know, a place apart, you know, the, the place that time forgot. And, and I thought, well, there must be a book about this. So what's the book? And, and then there, there was no book. There was no book about this place. And so it seemed like such an obvious gap with all these sort of things converging that I just decided, um, well, I'm going to do it. And so I did. And I spent, I spent all my time. I mean, the, the telegraph coverage from 96 to 99 was sort of heavily sort of um, angled towards South Armagh, which, you know, was not a perversion of the news because it was a very important place. But if there was any excuse to go to South Armagh, which was only sort of an hour, hour and a half away, I would do it. So I would go to Cross McGlen, you know, Fork Hill. I'd, if there was ever an election story, I'd always be, you know, sort of shadowing Sinn Féin. I went to all the IRA sort of commemorations and all the historical events. Uh, I started dating a girl um, that was from South Armagh. Um, and so, again, the sort of immersion process, I just, you know, I just I just spent a lot of time down there. To move on um, to your subsequent career moves, uh, Washington from 1999 to 2003, then Middle East correspondent in 2003, and then chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph in 2005. What was the motivation for each of those roles and how easy or difficult was it to kind of take each one for a few years and then move on to something else? So, yeah, so, I, you know, I was seen to have been successful in Northern Ireland. And I think I was able to, um, it was a very important story for the, for the Telegraph. Um, it was very, it was a big, you know, it was at times it was the biggest story in the world. But I think particularly the Telegraph, Charles Moore was the editor. He had a strong, you know, unionist, um, streaking him and uh, so it was a sort of a, you know I was a, a straight news reporter the paper for sort of editorial and sort of ideological reasons had a particular view of Northern Ireland and that was difficult to navigate I mean it was a plus because they were very interested but you know you were sort of you know it meant that you had a bit of baggage when you were in Northern Ireland and you had to sort of deal with that that the unionists loved you the british because they were they saw actually the telegraph as hostile to the peace process and the peace talks they were actually kind of suspicious and that the nationalist and republican side um were intensely suspicious but i managed to sort of navigate all that pretty successfully i think and so um everybody was pretty pleased with me and uh so charles moore actually i i, saw, I interviewed for the number two job in washington um and 
I didn't get it to sort of my surprise and dismay. But then a year later, the number one job in Washington came up um, and uh, I got sent there. And I, I, I do remember at the time thinking, um, you know, I was early 30. So by that point, I guess I was 33. I was single. Um, I was, you know, I the thing I'd liked about Northern Ireland was the sort of terrorism and the war and stuff. And then I was going to Washington, you know, before 9-11. And so I do remember thinking like, oh, I'd, I'd sort of rather go to the Middle East or India or somewhere because it'd be a bit more sort of gritty. And I think actually that would have played to my strengths in some ways more. But I was seen as somebody that could cover politics um, and, and uh, you know, any sort of mixture of sort of politics and violence. I mean, there wasn't much violence in Washington at that point. Um, but anyway, I think it was a slight, I felt like it was a slight curse that I'd maybe been too successful in writing about politics because politics is has never been my first love. But anyway, I got sent to Washington. And I mean, it was, it was, it was a shock to my system because, um, you know, I'd been doing this very, it was an important story, but it was a very sort of micro story. And I knew everything about the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP and, Sinn Féin and the Women's Coalition and, you know, all these intricacies of these negotiations, but it was very small. And then all of a sudden I was dealing, you know, it's writing about sort of China and Russia and nuclear treaties and, you know, the Clinton administration. And it was, it was a pretty steep learning curve. And I was, I was having to write about stuff sort of on deadline uh, that I knew very, very little about. And so that was a little bit sort of, uh, that was a little bit scary, but, um, you know, I got into it um, and, you know, again, you know, got to know people who worked on the Hill and people who worked in the White House and you used to build up this sort of network. Um, and then 9-11 happened. Um, and again, massive story. Um, but, you know, it was difficult because I was sort of, I want to go to Afghanistan. And they were like, no, <laughs> you know, we need you here. You know, people in the Bush administration. It's a, you know, it's, it's an important story. We're not you know, you're not moving. And, um, you know, it was a great story and I did enjoy it, but I was also looking at people, um, you know, in Afghanistan and later in Iraq, um, feeling that I was sort of missing out. And I remember, I remember literally having my head in my hands when the statue, Saddam statue was toppled in Iraq. And I was like, I can't believe I've, I've missed this, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I then, um, you know, I got sent to the Middle East uh, in 2003 and, um, you know, spoiler alert, you know, the, the Iraq war wasn't over and there was plenty of, 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 of that to come. Um, and so, you know, it was, it's difficult in a way because I, by that point, I'd built up, you know, a really good network in, in the US and... I think was sort of firing on all cylinders. And once again, you have to go to somewhere else where you don't have much background and you're the new kid on the block and you have to sort of build up your, you know, credibility, your social life and your friend network is obviously, it's just completely sort of turned upside down. So, you know, it was difficult, but in some ways, um, you know, very enjoyable. I mean, when I was a kid, I moved schools from the south of England to the north of England when I was nine. Then I moved schools again, you know, when I was 14. I remember sort of that feeling of going to 
onto the playground, not knowing a single person, thinking oh, the next week's going to be difficult, but I'll I'll get through it. And so as a journalist, I think, um, you know, I've had that sort of similar feeling where it's quite nice to be able to sort of put the previous thing behind you and, and start afresh. This is jumping around a little bit, but could you tell us now about Dead Man Risen? Uh, obviously, you and I have spoken about this before, um, some of it in the context of my own book, but could you explain for, for our listeners how this book, which ended up winning the Orwell Prize, came about uh, 10 years ago, and then some of the furore that uh, accompanied that? Sure. So um, this was, by this time, it was sort of 2009. So I'd done my Middle East job. Um, I'd got married to American and come back to Washington and initially working for the Sunday Telegraph and then by, then back as the US editor for the Daily Telegraph. So it was a sort of somewhat sort of eccentric choice to write about the British army in Helmand. Um, but what happened was, there was a guy called Rupert Thornelow, who was a Welsh Guards officer who I got to know in Northern Ireland and in fact had done the job that Robert Nyrak had done in 1977. And he, so Rupert was a a key sort of person in getting me interested in South Armagh and a key source for bandit country and a, and a good, at that time, a good friend. Um, he was the command, battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel of the Welsh Guards, and he was killed in action on July the 1st, 2009. He was blown up by an IED and they'd already lost a platoon commander and a company commander. And I was like, wow, I can't, you know, it was, you know, it was the height of, it was Panther's Claw, it was the height of the British casualties. And I was like, what on earth is happening there? And I knew various people in the regiment from Northern Ireland and also Iraq. I knew Charlie Antelm, um, who took over from Ru Rupert as commanding officers, former SAS officer, which we can say now, but we couldn't say at the time. <laughs> um, uh, and so I had connections and in the regiment and I had to sign this to, to get the embed to research the book. I had to sign a contract, which was, you know, uh, more than half an inch thick of, you know, uh, which I remember signing it thinking, Oh God, I, don't, I really don't like this, but I just need to get out there. But it basically said that, um, they could vet the manuscript, um, for, I think it was, uh, ac accuracy and op operational security with the two, um, categories. So I went out there, um, uh, spent a month or so with the Welsh Guards on the ground, um, came back, got the book contract afterwards, um, and then would go back and forth from Washington to the UK and interview soldiers in Wales, in Aldershot, in you know Salisbury Plain, all over the place. And it initially sort of see, seemed to be a sort of a relatively straightforward story of um, sort of, you know, heroism and daring do and, you know, all that. But it, as time sort of wore on, um, you know, over the course of a year, um, it was pretty clear that Rupert had been very dissatisfied with the level of resources. He'd opposed Panther's Claw, which is this sort of great, you know, um, much sort of ballyhooed operation. And... I was given a lot of documentation um, from the Welsh Guards and from the uh, brigade, um, you know, intelligence summaries, incident reports, and it was pretty messy, you know? And so it, it turned into 
you know, narrative about soldiers in war, but also what happens when you under resource a war and you don't have a plan and you change all your personnel every six months. And so I submitted the manuscript um, and it was a really brutal process. I mean, it was like, you know, I mean, you can just imagine uh, a, a book, go I mean, you probably don't need to imagine it actually, Simon, but a book going through the Ministry of Defence and landing on various desks and with a request for comment. You know, everybody tries to justify their own existence by changing something. And so I went through hundreds of changes um, and, you know, push back against a lot of them because sometimes some guy would say, you know, you need to take out any mention of electronic jamming, you know, in the entire book. And then you, then I go onto the website and find a whole page about electronic jamming. Um, and so anyway, um, the book eventually got okay for publication, but then um, somebody somewhere started to feel very uncomfortable about it. And so they tried to kind of bully me into um, amending the book and actually withdrawing the book um, by saying that uh, I had revealed the identities of special forces officers um, but, uh, because they'd okayed it for publication and I did have this sort of like tense moment where the publisher said, could you show us the email where they actually said it had, you know, it was passed for publication. And I was like, oh, you know, but I managed to find the email. Um, but in the end, it was sort of like lawyers at midnight, you know, and we did a deal where I made certain changes. They, they, they bought the first edition and pulped it. Um, like, I don't know how, how many, 20,000 copies or something. And, um, and then we reprinted with some passages uh, blacked out, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty brutal process that, you know, I mean, I sort of, it was good publicity in some ways, but I also really regret it because it ruined a number of relationships. And I think it, it made it very difficult for, I mean, I've never tried, but, you know, it made, made it very difficult for me to sort of do another book about British forces or anything sort of involving the Ministry of Defence. Um, yeah, so I'm sure this is bringing back unpleasant memories for Simon. Um, sorry to jump around, but we are getting towards the end of our time. Given your um, preference for being sort of on the ground and reporting and interviewing um, subjects, what informed your decision to return to Washington first for the Sunday Times and then uh, for the Washington Examiner? So... So, okay, so going back, I um, I moved back to Washington in 2006, and that was because I got married to an American, and for various reasons, we decided uh, that was the that was the place to be. And I actually left the staff of the... So I was chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph, based in London, sort of flying around the world. And so I left the staff and became, you know, a stringer for the Telegraph um, uh, in 2006. Then there was a big clear out at the Daily Telegraph and I got brought back onto the staff um, and, uh, and uh, you know, so returned to the Daily Telegraph. And at that point, because of, you know, children, you know, there's always this tie, there's been this, this sort of, you know, you have to live your life and you have family, children. And while I'd love to have spent my entire time sort of, you know, running around Afghanistan and Yemen and, Libya and you know life sort of intervenes and you just can't sort of do that so I sort of fell into this slight sort of rut of of being the of covering politics in Washington and I think I was pretty good at it and I was good at covering campaigns and I, I sort of enjoyed campaigns um in particular and so 
I needed to stay here. And so I, I sort of hopped from, um, from the Daily Telegraph initially to the Mail. I went to the, spent 2012 with the Mail, um, which is an interesting year, and and then went and then went to the the Sunday Times. And so um, you know, it was just uh, it was just kind of trying to ride that, keep keep you know getting the salary that I sort of needed, um, and you know being with my kids, and um, you know so the sort of um the the war side of things um sort of took a back seat sort of in that period and i was happy very happy to get out of it um and and sort of do this book full time and I, I can't tell you how overjoyed i am to not be covering american politics at the moment and not having to think about trump or talking to people who love trump or people who hate trump who just seems to have sort of turned everybody crazy it's it's great to not be a part of that and to dwell uh, briefly on the Washington Examiner for a bit, a little bit longer, um, there are reports of a, a toxic workplace culture of sexism and bullying. Do you want to comment on that or offer your version of events? Uh, I can't, unfortunately, sort of legal reasons. I mean, it was it was a short period there. It, it was a bruising experience, and I'm I'm glad it's over. Okay, Toby. Well, look, thanks for having been a, a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes. We're we're right up against the end of our time limit here, but wishing you all the best with this book going forward and with your other projects. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Rachel. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Toby Harnden. He's on Twitter, at Toby Harnden, and First Casualty, the untold story of the battle that began the war in Afghanistan, is published by Welbeck. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was the takeaway uh, from the interview with Toby? I was really interested to have him on the podcast. I've known Toby for a while. Um, he was uh, someone I spoke to and was helpful when I was working on my own book. And it was interesting to hear his own experiences of kind of battles and tussles with the the sort of British military establishment. And then also how his own um, journalistic career developed after, you know, going into that from, from being in the Navy beforehand. What about you, Rachel? Yes, I was actually going to say the same thing, the various tribunals and kind of legal cases. And um, I was fascinated to hear how he kind of dealt with that, um, as well as the kind of art of writing military history in, in general. What have you been up to? Uh, I have just filed a, uh, another draft of a 1843 story. So that hopefully is, is fairly um, near completion and then moving forward with the next one. So really um, magazine work dominated stuff. Um, and I also pleasingly found out that I'd won this thing called the Templar First Book Prize for the JG of the Guard, which was very gratifying. Anyway, Rachel, what about you? What have you been up to? I bet. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what have I been working on? The usual uh, mix of editing, writing little bits here and there. Um, 
yeah, I'm about to get stuck into my next kind of long piece, um, which I'm not going to talk about because it's previously advertised and I've put it off. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, keeping busy as always. Is this the Portuguese erotica writers? Yes, <laughs> yes. We, we all it wasn't purely erotica. We but, we all yes. know about them, and we're looking forward to hearing more. Um, Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikam. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter under Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. Our crowdfunding page on Patreon is under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. <laughs>